Welcome to Political as Heck. It's a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined today, as always, by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. How are you doing, Todd? Good, Corey. How are you? I am good. I'm doing well. Summer's coming to a close. That's something I don't like. School's going to start in two weeks, which is just crazy. All right, let's jump into a few things. Uh, I want to start with an op-ed written by our own Senator Mitt Romney that was published in the Wall Street Journal. And the title is Donors Don't Fund a Trump Plurality. All right. And I'm going to read, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read some passages here. He says, Despite Donald Trump's apparent inevitability, a baker's dozen of Republicans are hoping to become the party's 2024 nominee for president. That is possible for any of them, but the field narrows to a two person race before Mr. Trump has the nomination sewn up. For that to happen, Republican mega donors and influencers, large and small, are going to have to do something they didn't do in 2016, get candidates they support to agree to withdraw if and when their paths to the nomination are effectively closed. That decision day should be no later than, say, February 26th, the Monday following the contest in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. I'm gonna skip down a little bit. Left to their own inclinations, expect several of the contenders to stay in the race for a long time. They will split the non-Trump vote, giving him the prize. A plurality is all that is needed for winner-take-all primaries. Donors who are backing someone with a slim chance of winning should seek a commitment from the candidate to drop out and endorse the person with the best chance of defeating Mr. Trump by February 26th. Donors may think that party leaders can narrow the field. Not so. Candidates don't listen to party officials because voters don't listen to them either. That's a fact. And the last people who would ever encourage a candidate to withdraw are the campaign staff and the consultants who want to keep their jobs for as long as possible. That's totally true, too. So, Todd, I completely agree with Senator Romney here. I think he's identified the problem. In 2016, Trump actually lost Iowa with 24%. It was Ted Cruz who won with, I think, 27%. But Trump went on to win New Hampshire and South Carolina with only 32%. That's it. So less than a third of GOP voters chose him in the early states, but it was enough to build momentum in our system. And that's basically how it works. And so later he was able to score 40 to 45% in a few Super Tuesday states. But there were plenty of states, including Utah, where he got completely shellacked. But the winner-take-all system makes it possible to win big in states with something much less than a majority because you get to keep all of those electoral votes. And then it makes it almost impossible for any competitor to catch up later on in the process. And so what Trump has today is a solid, let's say 30 to 35% base of support. And that can definitely win him the early states if too many candidates split the non-Trump vote too many ways. So in other words, what we're really saying is a supermajority, 65 to 70% of the voters in a state may want someone other than former President Trump, but Trump can still win because he has a plurality, and then he gets to take all of the electoral votes from that state. Now, that's not exactly how it happens in the early states, but it's basically how it happens later, and it, you know, it has a lot of momentum and so forth. So I personally believe there are more voters who are ready to move on from Trump than those who want to repeat the 2020 election of Trump versus Biden. I want to state again for the 20th time categorically, and I'll continue to say, I think President Trump did some amazing things and I'm very grateful to all that he did. 
I am very nervous that he can't beat President Biden. And if he does, I don't know where this country is going to go, because I do know that the, the liberal establishment, progressive uh, radicals that run all of our institutions are going to go nuts. And it's probably going to be four years of absolute uh, hell on earth. So I think Romney's right. I think the candidates that don't have a serious chance, I think they need to set their egos aside and drop out and let someone win. I mean, if that had happened in 2016, then probably Ted Cruz would, would, have been, would be president today. And I'm not saying that was the best outcome, but I am saying today, like, we need someone who can serve for eight years. We need someone who can definitely beat Biden. And I think basically all the candidates can beat Biden. Trump, I'm not sure. I think he'd probably lose. He might not, but he probably will. Todd, what do you think? I think you're, uh, I agree with everything you said 100%, and I want to add a little bit more. The Trump supporters who hate this editorial, I just want to tell you, Corey, if this, if, if Mitt Romney were running for president and Donald Trump was on the sidelines and Trump had published this and said, if we want to coalesce in the anti-Romney vote, we need everybody else to drop out by February 26th. The Trump supporters would be saying, this is absolutely brilliant. And so, you know, you cannot, um, in politics, you can never divorce the message from the messenger. Just like, you know, Rick, San uh, sorry, um, Governor DeSantis and this whole, you know, uh, Blacks benefited from slavery debate. Um, one thing we didn't say last week that I didn't know was that same sentiment was in the AP uh, courses uh, from the um, college. But, but back to this, but let me tell you why, even though Mitt Romney's right, the candidates aren't going to do this because what it's looking like, in fact, none of the candidates are going to do this unless they can't pay their staff or they can't afford a, uh, a, an airplane ticket to the next state. Because if it's like it looks right now, if it's Trump versus Biden, then the, 28, the 2028 presidential election has no incumbent from either you know, there's no incumbent in that race, um, you know, and because there's no way that Trump can, well, if Trump wins, there's no way he can, he can't be president three times. He might try, but, um, and if Trump loses, I think, uh, you know, having lost twice in a row, I can't imagine that Republicans would nominate him again. But anyway, so I think that you'll see Republicans stay in the race to try to become a front runner for 2028. And, um, Past Republicans who overstayed their welcome in presidential races have been richly rewarded. Rick Santorum did it, and Mike Huckabee did it. And of course, their numbers go up when everybody else drops out, except and it's just them and the eventual nominee, because there's always that 25% that will vote against anybody. Um, so, uh, and th those two that I just named, they both got rewarded with very, you know, million dollar contracts on Fox News because it makes them look like they're more viable yeah. than they actually are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So there are real serious incentives for people to stay in. And, and I think if in an honest moment, most of them would say, oh, yeah, I don't really have a chance of winning. But they're trying to accomplish other things, whether it's to get a Fox News uh, show, or maybe get a cabinet position, or a couple of them are definitely in the vice presidential race. Um, but you know, we may not have a clear, I think one problem, argument against Senator Romney's op-ed is we may not have a clear front runner competitor to President Trump because we could have Tim Scott win in Iowa and then Ron DeSantis win in New Hampshire or something. And so that could really 
muddle the waters a little bit, but it would make it clear for the others that it's time to bounce. You know, it's time to move on. So Todd, you've been involved in some uh, legislative interim meetings. Why don't you tell us about what's going on? Well, um, thanks for asking. So uh, remember, and I've mentioned this before, on the third Wednesday of almost every month between May and November, the legislature is in session. When there is a special session, we've already had two uh, this year, they always schedule it on top of, almost always schedule it on top of the standard interim meetings because everyone's already there and it doesn't really cost anything more to have a special session on interim day. And we have about eight interim subcommittees, and those are everything from business and labor, like I'm on judiciary and law enforcement, which I'm also on. I'm on judiciary. They split up judiciary and law enforcement. There's political subdivisions. There's natural resources. Um, there's rev revenue and taxation. Um, and uh, there's government operations. And a lot of these, um, you know, kind of deal with mundane and boring topics. But what the legislators are doing is they are prepping ideas and committee bills that are typically heard the first week of the session, and they're priming the pump for the next session. So when we start the very first day, which we always now, the new, the new start date is the Tuesday after Martin Luther King Day, we have to have some bills to, you know, that have already you know, kind of been through a committee. So these um, interim committees uh, will often serve the role of that first committee hearing. And so on the very first day of the session, we will also often be voting on a bill out of the Senate or out of the House, and then it'll get a second committee uh, meeting in, in the other body. Um, so, uh, so some of the issues um, that we've been talking about this year, uh, some of them have made the newspapers. Um, road rage is on an agenda for, for August, and I've kind of taken a leadership role in trying to address that. Um, the media... You know, again, I and I've said this um, on some of my interviews. I want to know if this is just like Shark Week, because you know, Shark Week, we all hear about shark attacks and everybody gets terrified. It's like you know, seeing Jaws all over again. And, and you know, is the media just kind of making a sensation about a few high-profile incidents? And tragically, we had two innocent people killed. You know, last month, within the last month, um, or are do our statistics show that you know road rage inc incidents are going up? I'm convinced that they probably are going up, uh, but I'm not I'm not sure if we properly um, are tracking those because it might just be somebody might be cited with disorderly conduct or, um, you know, improper lane change if they're cutting people off. So I'm not sure that we're actually um, tracking road rage. Another um, a bill, uh, another interim bill that's uh, or discussion that's got a lot of media attention is down in your area, uh, the Alpine School District is closing um, some schools and some parents are crying foul and saying they did, they jumped the gun, they didn't follow the timeline in state law. And so the Administrative Rules Committee has has been, you know, looking into that. And um, um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some, some legislation on that. Oftentimes, you know, the, the interim committees are getting reports from prior bills to make sure that they're, they're being implemented or they're getting reports from different agencies uh, that report to, to, to those committees. And so I think those are two issues that you'll, you'll see in the upcoming session. That's good to know. So we do have plenty of listeners from the Alpine School District. So what would the legislation do exactly? 
or we don't know. That's why you're studying it. Yeah, we don't know, but I, it may it may have a penalty if that timeline is not followed. Um, uh, and, and by the way, the Salt Lake School District is now in the process. Uh, they've just announced that they're looking at closing some schools. And I'll tell you, school closures are hard. I mean, nobody wants school yeah. that kids went to and nobody wants the schools that they that they graduated from to close. But sometimes, you know, they have to close. And Corey, this is the tip of the iceberg. And, I, and you're going to be shocked when I tell you this. Despite the explosive growth that our state has, our student, um, our student population is going to go down or at least remain flat for at least the next five or six years. When I first joined the legislature, so every year, if you think about it, you have the seniors graduate and you have a new class of kindergartners, right? Um, the first 10 years I was in the legislature, we had on the average between 13 and 10, 10 and 13,000 more students each school year than we had the previous school year. So that's accounting for all of that. And um, this last year we had, it was almost flat. I think we were like plus one or two or 3,000. And the projection for the next five years is it's going to be basically flat, if not declining. So it's been declining in the Salt Lake School District, Salt Lake City School District for years. And they've been kind of just shuffling papers around and they didn't close any schools. And, and finally, there was a legislative audit and they said, look, at you're wasting taxpayer money by leaving these schools open. And I find that interesting because uh, now the, the Salt Lake City School District, um, they're blaming the legislature saying, well, we don't want us to close these schools, but the legislative yeah. audit. Yeah you know, said that we had to, um, which I, is an interesting strategy for them to just pass the buck, when in reality, they should have been closing schools really over the past 15 years. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, the reality is, Corey, and I don't know if you're seeing this in your circle of uh, friends, but my parents had six kids. My wife's parents had six kids. My wife and I had four kids. <laughs> and uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some of our children have two or three kids. Um, that is happening all over the state, and as a result, even though our population is growing, our student population is not really keeping up, and uh, that's happening across the nation, especially because a lot of 20 and 30 year olds uh, aren't getting married and they're not planning on getting married. That's going to dramatically uh, affect our, you know, um, you know, our, our nation in terms of our economy and and people to fill jobs and. Uh, you know, right now we see this big push against, you know, illegal immigration. 30 or 40 years ago, we may be begging people come, to come here just to, to take jobs. If this trend continues, I'm not I'm not good at predicting the future. Well, around the world, a lot of almost every country is shrinking and China is going to drop by a third over the next 50 years, which is just really pretty dramatically crazy if you think about it. But so I, th I that, that is an interesting factoid that I didn't really know about Utah. I think also what we're dealing with in Alpine School District in particular is areas that where the kids are grown and gone, and then areas of growth like where I live, where there's younger families and newly wed and nearly dead. That's what they call that. So. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, well, I know Japan. Salt Lake County is in that problem too. Japan as a country is losing between five hundred and eight hundred thousand people every year. Their population is shrinking every year. It's been happening for a while. It's going to continue because of that Asian culture and that Asian lifestyle. So um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, housing, <laughs> if you want a cheap uh, apartment, move to Japan because they, they, I mean, they can't, you know, they don't need new housing like we do here. Maybe they can box up and ship it here. I don't know. <clears throat> they also don't let immigrants in. Basically, if you're not Japanese, you don't get to come.
let's turn to something a little bit more lighthearted because I thought this was really fun. A new study published in Scientific Reports showed that computers can now predict a person's political leanings to a success rate of 61% based on that person's level of attractiveness, Todd. What's more, according to these researchers, quote, politicians on the right have been found to be more attractive than those on the left, <laughs> unquote. For both women and men, people with right-leaning leaning political beliefs are more attractive than people with left-leaning political beliefs, that's overall. The study further found that, ex quote, expressing happiness is associated with conservatism for both genders, unquote, as well. So in sum, what this study found was that conservatives are happier and more attractive. We also know from numerous studies over the years that people with left-leaning political beliefs have higher rates of neuroticism and anxiety and depression. Doesn't mean they're bad people. This is just an observation and a fact. So Todd, what's your best guess? Do you think happier and more attractive people are drawn to conservatism? Or do you think that there's something about a conservative approach to the world that generates these traits? Well, I'm so assuming for a moment that this scientific research is in fact scientific and accurate, <laughs> I would have to guess it's maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> it probably is a little bit of both. And, uh, but I, I, I found it fascinating because, um, you know, obviously this is kind of a, an attaboy, like pat yourself on the back kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. I'm but, just wondering if it scanned our faces, if it would think we're conservative or liberal. <laughs> yeah. We're not, we're, you and I are not going to undergo this part of the study, but I, but I think it's interesting because I definitely believe in my own personal experience that conservative people, I don't know if they're more attractive. I wouldn't, you know, I, I, it doesn't particularly surprise me that they found that, but uh, I definitely think on the happier side of things, uh, I definitely think that's the case. Well, know, we know that um, religious people are more conservative and conservative people are more religious than liberals. I mean, that, that's been the case. I mean, and that's studied uh, quite, that's, that's polled quite frequently in the United States. And it's been that way for, I think, uh, four or five decades, but it's becoming more, uh, it's, it's coming, becoming much more uh, apparent now uh, than even just a decade ago. So um, it seems like more and more liberals are abandoning their religion, or, or maybe they're adopting liberal philosophies and policies as their new religion. I, I, I can't say for sure. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. But even Republicans are becoming, you know, as far as like the percentage that are religious. If you look at actually look at Trump voters, a lot of them are religious believing, but uh, don't go to church kind of thing. So there is there are changes that are happening on the Republican side as well. But um, I think what besides just a, a belief in in what's to come and a future and having a purpose and so forth, I think those are all all contribute to happiness, but also having, having relationships with people. You know, I think that that is probably one of the main drivers because I think on the left, they, I think there's more loneliness. I think there's more single people. I think, you know, less community interaction. This isn't for everybody. I'm just saying as an average on the whole, you know, the bell curve kind of thing. And so I think being close to family, having friends, having, uh, or, you know, fellow churchgoers in a neighborhood that you know the people and that kind of thing it makes a huge difference. For our last thing, I kind of debated doing this, but I just felt like we had to. There was a completely insane op-ed that was published in the Salt Lake Tribune 
written by the Women's Democratic Club of Utah. Now I'm not familiar with them and maybe they're, you're totally familiar with them and, and they're your friends and everything. And I, and I apologize, Todd, but, but this, this op-ed was completely insane. And to me, it just, it, it really underscored how Democrats have changed in Utah <laughs> from being kind of conservative, like left-leaning Mormons to just completely wild-eyed far-left progressives. So they started out by saying each SCOTUS decision, so this is a Supreme Court had several decisions, and they say that every, all these decisions that came down last month prove that they're, that the common thread that binds them together, they say, is white male Christian nationalism. The Dobbs decision, like had, having to do with abortion, that was racist. Racist intent, there was racism in the affirmative action case because they said the 14th Amendment's very intent was affirmative action, which is totally confused and wrong. <laughs> and then they go on to say the overturn of the student loan forgiveness program, that was racist, puts another nail in the coffin of marginalized groups. It's just bizarre. And, uh, and then the, the First Amendment case, uh, they, they thought that was racist, and, and they went on this conversation about public accommodations, which is not what the case is about. It's completely confused, and they have no idea what they're talking about, clearly. And it's just pathetic. And I, I just want to say really quickly, I understand why people might be upset that the Supreme Court said that, uh, that a designer, an artist, doesn't have to perform art for groups that they, that, uh, you know, they don't agree with. And in this case, you're like, why should we be marginalizing LGBT people? I guess the question I have back in return was, what if they asked her to publish a Nazi website? Or they said, I want you to bake a cake with a swastika, 16 swastikas around it. Does she have a right to say no to that? Well, before the Supreme Court case, the answer is no. You know, she didn't have a right to say no to that. She would have to do it. And what this case is saying is, no, if you don't believe, like, if, how about a case that says uh, the N-word all over it? You know, maybe a cake that says that or, or a website that says it. Should, should you have to prepare that? I mean, I think no. I think that's an easy no. Um, but that, that's what the case basically said. And just because it had to do with uh, LGBT, you know, suddenly that, that has, you know, it's... it's uh, what about a cake with por pornographic images on it? I yeah, mean, there you go. You can yeah. take pictures now and turn it into frosting, you know, and yeah, people do that with their faces for a birthday party and things like that. Yeah, it's nuts. So people don't really think through like, okay, what does this case even mean? Which is the role of the Supreme Court is to say like, okay, what, what are the implications? And so this op-ed goes on to say that all these things, the, the cake case, the abortion decision, the forgiveness of student loans, and these all were ultimately rooted in racism, they say. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the kicker, and I'd love to hear what you think. They, their conclusion is, they say, our only hope is wokeness. <laughs> well, what do you think, Todd? <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I, I think this is ridiculous. And I think if you're holding a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and I think it's sad that the political discourse in this country over the last several years has devolved into from the left. If you are a Republican, you're a racist. And and if they want to accelerate that, it's if you're a Republican, you're a white supremacist or you're a white supremacist sympathizer. I was listening to a local, another Utah political podcast, 
and 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 uh, this woman was basically saying that uh, Governor DeSantis had been throwing out like uh, verbally, you know, kind of baiting the white supremacists to let them know that he's on their team, and I, and that this whole thing with the with the curriculum uh, that was developed by black professors in Florida um, <laughs> was just part of that, and so. Um, I am resigned to the fact, Corey, that as a Republican, I will be called a racist for the rest of my life. Um, and I don't believe I'm a racist. Um, and, you know, it's like it's like, you know, the question, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, because the presumption in that question is, is at one point you were beating your wife. And, you know, it's hard to defend yourself from a racist claim when the person making the claim has already concluded that if you're a Republican, you have to be a racist. And yeah. I, I categorically reject that premises. Are there racists in the Republican Party? Sure. I think it's a very small percent. Um, and uh, I'm sure there's racists in the Democratic Party as well. Um, and uh, anyway, that's all I'm going to say. All right. Thanks, all right. Todd. See you next, next week. week. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>